Hello there and welcome to the Pint-Sized Healing Podcast. My name is Max Thompson, let's get started. Uh, today's speakers again are Aubrey and Monkey. Let me turn it over to Aubrey to kick us off. Thank you, thank you. I am really excited about this topic, but I think I'm excited about most topics most of the time. Um, But what I want to mention at the beginning of today's podcast that I am most enthused about is this podcast is actually a ramp up for our next podcast. Uh, We have been honored with the um, uh, setup to be able to interview Andrew Willis, who's the CEO of Stop Abuse Campaign and Barry Goldstein, who's the founder, co-founder of Stop Abuse Campaign, who are uh, at the forefront nationally and internationally of both domestic violence advocacy and um, legal reform, as well as activism for child safety, um, child abuse issues. Barry has written a book called The Quincy Solution, which is based on a specific legal protocol that was started, oddly enough, in Quincy, Massachusetts, which is a teeny tiny little town. So we wanted to talk about PTSD because most of us either have heard it or heard it in terms of our own situation or someone saying, oh, yeah, I'm a survivor of XYZ kind of abuse, whatever it is, um, and someone told me I might have PTSD. So what we're going to do today is we're doing a little bit slightly different format. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the science and the research and the healthcare stuff behind it because that's my area of expertise. And then we're, I'm going to throw it over to Monkey. And Monkey is going to be talking about her journey and how these things correlated between her childhood experiences and how she realizes um, this has impacted and formed her as an adult. So. Indeed. We're gonna. That's that's how we're gonna roll today. So that's how we're gonna try to roll. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna try to keep it at less than four hours. Yes. Sorry, no, nobody be alarmed. Nobody, no one be alarmed. Um, so okay, so there there are a few things that people are are really familiar with. Okay, so we know, we think we know what trauma is. All of us have had some sort of a very upsetting or traumatic experience, and the thing that most people can relate to is the death of someone close to them. And, you know, after someone close to you dies, almost everybody goes into some sort of a grieving process that's physical. So not just the emotional grief, but the physiological process of grieving, which can include, you know, you want to sleep all the time, you either don't want to eat at all, or you just eat incessantly. You know, whatever your physiological process is for that, um, and everyone's slightly different, but I think most people have had the experience of completely shutting down, just wanting to sleep. And that can most closely be correlated with something called acute stress disorder or acute stress reaction. So this is something that's really common. This can be a result of anything shocking, experiencing anything shocking. So I'm going to give you an example, as I normally do out of my own life. When I was about six years old, my dog, and I'm an only child, so my dog was like my brother, right? 
um, my dog, I had a dachshund, loved to dig out under the fence. And I got off the school bus one day and was walking down the street, didn't realize my dog had gotten out, and turned around in time to see him get hit by a car. Oh, no. And, yeah, he survived. He was okay. He ended up with a broken hip, but he was okay. But <clears throat> for about a month after that, I literally would not let this dog out of my sight, and I was absolutely hysterical when I had to leave to go to school. Did mm-hmm. not want to go to school because I didn't trust my mother to make sure that he wasn't digging out under the fence and it wasn't going to happen again and everything. Bear in mind, this poor dog was all wrapped up and still had a broken hip and whatnot. Yeah. But that is most closely correlated to, I mean, that's a very simple explanation of an acute stress reaction. So mm-hmm. it's a normal knee-jerk reaction to a shocking event. Yeah. Where you get into the genesis of PTSD is a lot of people will have an acute stress reaction and then you get over it. You normalize again. Everything kind of gets back into perspective. PTSD actually evolves and develops. It's not an illness. It's a psychiatric injury and it evolves from something else. So a lot of times what what we see in the healthcare literature in particular, all the research, is that someone might have an acute stress reaction or acute stress disorder. Those are used interchangeably. Okay. If it's extended longer than one month and it has certain specific characteristics, then it can be considered um, a new diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. So there are certain things that are considered characteristic of this. One of these one is emotional numbness. Just you don't just you just don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Um you kind of feel like you're in a daze all the time, like you're floating, you know, like you you're in the world but you're not really of it. You're not participating. Yeah. Um you avoid anything that reminds you of the event or the person or whatever caused the trauma. Um, I know that when I was living in um, Maryland, they have a commuter rail that has, it's an acronym, as most commuter rails are. It has an acronym, and that acronym exactly spelled out my ex-husband's first name. So when I would be driving around town or on the interstate, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like a little jack-in-the-box popping up in my face, you I know, know, every three miles, and I'm going, really? <laughs> you know, yeah. you couldn't have a whole different set of, of letters for this commuter rail, mm. but I found myself, um, I, because I had a very specific commute from Central Maryland to Arlington, Virginia, every day. And I found right. myself memorizing exactly where those signs were so that I could avert my eyes. Right. Because I didn't, I didn't want that flashing symbol, which is what it felt like, a big flashing mm-hmm. symbol. Um, one of the other symptoms, reliving and replaying the events over and over and over. No yep. matter how you try to avoid it, just keeps coming back up and gets, re- gets replayed. Yeah. Um, and the big, the big one, this is sort of an umbrella term, which is hyperarousal. So basically any normal emotion is completely amped up. You can feel sad, and sadness immediately goes to just being despondent. Yeah. You can feel a little angry over something, and suddenly you're enraged over it. 
So it's any normal emotion only on steroids. It's yeah. That reminds me of at some point I called a friend. I think it was like three in the morning as well, and I was I was distraught (laughs) seriously. And um, the trigger had been the fact that I I had I had done the washing and all my wash had got tangled up in a sheet and I couldn't get it out of the machine. Mm -hmm. And I just went from that is annoying to I'm a failure at anything and everything. Yeah, yeah I'm a failure um, at life. With, like, within my like five seconds. And, and I just, and luckily I had a friend that I could call at that time of night. <laughs> but but that's like, that's how quick it can go. And, and it's that, it can be that kind of trigger, right? Yeah, like, and it can be something just completely normal. Yeah. And that you wouldn't, you would expect yourself to have a normal annoyance reaction, and instead your brain says, "Oh no, no, no! We're going to see this is a hundred times bigger than it actually yes, is." So exactly. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. So, and then everyone, um, you know, one of the things that Barry and Andrew likely will talk about when um, we interview them on the podcast is the financial toll of abuse. Because there are a lot of studies out there that put the financial toll of just on the medical system, just on the healthcare system, uh-huh. in the hundreds of millions of dollars per year. And this is why. Because when we're traumatized routinely and repeatedly, Mm-hmm. There are physiological symptoms that go along with that. Yeah. So most people listening to this probably have have or have had gastrointestinal problems that you, mm-hmm. you can't seem to solve no matter what it is. Um, you can have severe sleep problems. Either you want to sleep too much or you can't sleep at all. I tend to fall at the, the extreme end of, ooh, yay, me, I got four whole hours last night. That's awesome. Um, one of the other things that I've personally experienced in my PTSD is something called cyclic tachycardia. Cyclic tachycardia will come out of absolutely nowhere. I could be sitting at my desk working on something that had nothing to do with anything, nothing legal, nothing about my ex-husband, nothing. And all of a sudden my blood pressure would shoot out the roof and my heart would start to race. Mm. and there was no conscious trigger for it. There was nothing, but these are just physiological things. It's almost like if you could imagine a car engine that's unregulated, and it, you know, like the timing belt comes off or whatever happens when a car engine does that, and it doesn't know what to do. Sometimes it'll, it'll rev up, and then sometimes it'll slow down, and it'll rev up for no reason, and then it'll slow down. So it's kind of the same thing. Your body is trying to normalize itself in an abnormal environment, abnormal yeah. situation. So the problem that we find with understanding PTSD in the context of surviving, non, especially non-physical abuse, because yeah. it's so obvious. If someone, if you're beaten as a child or if you are physically attacked as an adult, that is obvious trauma. People can get their head around that. Yes. The problem is we are in a day and age where we do not have a trauma. Well, it's probably been, you know, for decades and decades and decades. We don't have a trauma-informed society. So even though, you know, people have heard of PTSD, a lot of them have may have heard it first as battle fatigue 
or combat stress, and they correlate it to um, war, to soldiers who've been in combat. And then as we've sort of gotten more information, we understand, oh, okay, people who are victims of violent crime, sexual assault, things like that, they develop PTSD. Um, you know, this can happen, that can happen. And so there's a little bit more understanding. But the problem is that unless they've experienced it, people can't understand that there is massive trauma that can be caused by, with, in, in the absence of any physical violence. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're, what we're aiming to talk about. I mean, there's, the, there's a reason, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but we, no, 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 we recently, we had a, we published an, an article about uh, emotional armor and, it, and it, it goes into that sort of emotional detachment as well. But there's a, there's a reason why, uh, you know, why we linked it to it's emotional warfare. You're constantly under attack. Exactly. Um, and, uh, so it's it is it is a situation in which you are constantly uh wondering where the next blow is going to come from uh and you're on constant guard it's it's a really stressful thing um it is it is very much like being in a war it's just yeah. a war where there's no physical combat but it is a exactly. psychological war constantly that's absolutely right and this is part of what we're going to be talking about with Andrew and Barry as well, is the ACE study, A-C-E, stands for mm-hmm. Adverse Childhood Experiences. Doctors Vincent Folletti and Robert Anda worked on this. It was a longitudinal study of people that had suffered some sort of trauma in childhood or adverse experience in childhood and how it affected their physiological health as an adult. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll, after we do the next podcast, we can link some things on the site as well that show some of the stats from the ACE study. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that, you know, if you have an ACE score of four or higher, you are something like 150 times more likely to have greater than 30 sexual partners in your lifetime. And mm-hmm. you're X number of percent higher risk of intravenous drug use. And I mean, all these other things. So what they did is they took all this information and put it together and said, how does trauma in childhood affect physical health in adulthood? It's incredibly, for people like me, it's incredibly interesting. <laughs> Very interesting scientific reading for nerds like myself, or as my boyfriend calls me, his nerdlet. His nerdlet. Um, so, so we... We link all of this, all of our experiences with a toxic person to our physiological and psychological functioning as adults. Mm -hmm. And even though a lot of people don't recognize that they had trauma in childhood, they may have. I know that that was a hard thing for me to circle back around Mm -hmm. and go back in it because, you know, I was with my ex-husband for a total of 28 years, three years dating, Mm -hmm. 25 years married. And so... All of all of my trauma, I correlated to um, that relationship. And so going back beyond that relationship and starting to examine traumas I experienced in childhood, and trauma can be a lot of different things. For instance, my father was chronically ill. And mm-hmm. so from the time I was two years old, um, when he had his first heart attack, I never knew what it was like to have a healthy father. He had degenerative right. heart disease. Mm-hmm. That's a trauma. 
Yep. So anyway, so when we're talking about um, we're talking about PTSD in particular and how all this is correlated psychologically and physically. So what we often miss is is twofold, two things. The first thing is that there's something called intra-traumatic stress. It's not acute stress disorder and it's not post-traumatic stress disorder. This applies to probably 99.9% of us on swan waters because intra-traumatic stress is just what it sounds like. You are still exposed to the trauma. Uh-huh. So even if you have gone no contact, even if you have um, you know, completely removed yourself from the situation, there are other things that can happen. Um, but, but in intra-traumatic stress, and I just want to tell you how this played out in my own life in two phases. So uh-huh. the first phase was after I had my first daughter, which was almost 17 years ago this month, I'm in shock, Um, about six months later, I realized that I was having symptoms that I didn't recognize. Went to my gynecologist, my OBGYN, and told him what was going on, and he said, you know what, I think you have postpartum depression. I'm going to send you over to a friend of mine who's a counselor and does medication and that sort of thing. So I was diagnosed with postpartum depression. After about another two years went by and my symptoms Mm -hmm. were actually getting worse they said "Mm, you might have a mood disorder so we're going to work with this after I had my second daughter when my older daughter was almost four and a half my symptoms went off the charts right and they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. well of course I was having the garden variety other stuff going along physiological stuff the gastrointestinal things severe headaches, you know, all those physical symptoms that no one could ever seem to find a reason for. Mm-hmm. So I was actually treated for eight years for bipolar disorder. About a year and a half, well, almost two years, after I got away from my ex-husband physically, away from him, and yeah. I had been divorced a little bit over a year, I was able to go completely off all medication, and I was absolutely fine. Now, mm-hmm. anyone who knows anything about bipolar disorder knows it, it's not curable. No, exactly. You, you, no. You, know, you can't cure bipolar disorder. It's not one of those where you go, oh, I'm fixed. I can stop this now and everything. Exactly. And that was when my healthcare team went, oh, wait a minute. We're dealing with something completely different. So let's, you know, let's see what that's about. So from that time for about another year and a half, I didn't need anything. I was absolutely fine until the entire, you know, the whole experience where he then hired a private investigator to have me found and sent a package to my house to let him, to let me know he knew where I was. Mm-hmm. We went through all that experience, and then I was thrown into acute stress disorder, which then morphed into post-traumatic stress disorder, courtesy of Joel's favorite term, the lawsuit years. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as intra-traumatic stress continues. And by the way, I did not learn that term until um, 2014, early of early 2014, when we hired Dr. Evan Stark to work as an expert on my defense case. 
Uh-huh. And he said to me, you understand there's another area here, and it's called intertraumatic stress. You can't even get to post-traumatic stress because you're still experiencing the trauma over and yeah. over and over, which totally made sense. Definitely. So the second part of, of what we sometimes miss when we're trying to recover from all of this is that trauma is not always a single point event. So whereas someone whose trauma might be um, a crime victim, you know, a Uh sexual assault or a a severe car crash, whatever, that's a single point trauma, right? Uh So that's one point in time that you can say that happened. Yes. But by living with or having a relationship with a toxic person, you're essentially re-traumatized over and over and over again. Yeah. There's no rebound time at all. There's no healing capacity. There's nothing. So in addition to not being able to heal from each individual single point trauma, additional traumas are being piled on top of it. And that was actually a lot of what I was sort of alluding to in the article about silence. Those that psychological warfare of silence and of unspoken threats and glaring stares and that sort of thing, those are additional mm-hmm. traumas that are piled on top of whatever the whole underlying dynamic is. So, so let's talk about, um, it, so say you, you've gotten away, you know, in my case, I've gotten away from my ex-husband. You have removed yourself from your family or yep. no contact. It doesn't mean that the toxic person isn't still re-traumatizing you. You've Indeed. got communications issues, right? So we get stalked online all the time. Yep. Um, and they leave little calling cards, right? They yeah, yeah, because you, call, yeah. Yes. Yeah. stalking is no fun if you don't let the person know that you're exactly. stalking. Exactly. <laughs> no, there's no payoff for them if they exactly. don't leave a little hint that they know that they were there, that they knew what was going on, whatever. Yeah. Um, that's how they get their 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 supply, their narc and supply. So we've even had. Um, I mean, right now we live in a place, and they don't know where we live. They don't have our address. So that's that's cool. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. gives a lot of peace of mind. But um, uh, the place we lived in before, they had our address because we moved from their house to theirs. They they still had that address. And there was times when um, we would just be walking around uh, the town, you know, in our our neighborhood and getting our shopping and stuff like that. And we would go like, um, uh, hey, that was one of my sisters that was just standing there, Mm -hmm. um, just kind of standing there and and looking about. And it's this, and we've had that a couple of times where we're like, and and you sort of, do a double take and you're like, nah, it must be, do you know what I mean? It must be someone else yeah, or something because yeah. why would they be, uh, you know, 50 bathroom, miles maybe. down the road to just <laughs> sit there and, but, but it gets, but it, let me tell you, it happens twice and it's in your head, right? So it's every exactly. time I saw anyone who even remotely resembled any of my family members, I would just, my stress levels would just shoot up oh, yeah. uh, like, like a maniac, <laughs> Absolutely. Your brain, your brain reacts immediately. Your brain reacts to, I mean, here's another example of how they can continue to traumatize you even when there's no contact. Telling other people lies about you. Mm-hmm. I remember being physically affected when I would find out that my ex-husband was spreading a bunch of, compl- I'm not talking just lies, I'm talking 
complete like delusional fabrication. Yep. I'm going, where did this even come from? That's traumatic. You know, legal actions, that's one of the favorites. And I've talked to people whose families have done this as well. So it's not just toxic partners, but toxic families. They'll just file stuff to file stuff. You know, I've been in court multiple times over multiple things that were all baseless. Every single item was baseless. Mm. It doesn't matter. See, I'm I'm fortunate enough to come from a country where it costs them money to file um, well, unless yeah. they win. So, yeah. well, <laughs> so, you know, my, and it sets my, them back, sets them back. My like... fabulous, uh, my fabulous defense attorney one day I was having, I was having a moment and he, he eventually learned to kind of roll with my occasional outbursts. And, and he goes, Aubrey, look, you are going to get targeted by this guy. And he says, unfortunately in our country, any asshole with an ax to grind and a hundred bucks can file a lawsuit. And that's it. Yeah. And, you know, and and that is one of their favorite go-to items is to keep you traumatized by having to defend yourself against things that either never happened or are just in their imagination or whatever. And it's, and it's such yeah. a fantastically public way of, of um, broadcasting these lies that they're making up about you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the flip side of that is refusals to adhere to legal orders and to mm. – and, and, you know, that is that is probably one of the most under-recognized trauma items, especially for single parents who have a toxic co-parent. Yes. When, when you've gone to the extent of going through and making these agreements and coming to the, you know, no matter how, if, if your divorce was high conflict or low conflict, you know, um, I know Stefan's was very high conflict, mine was zero conflict because... He didn't think I was going to do it. Right. So, but you go through all these gyrations and you make these commitments and then it's considered a legal order. Their favorite play toy is, yeah, I'm not going to do that. And I'm just going to dare you to do something about it. Yep. Um, and, on the, and, and partnered with that is things that damage other people that you care about. You know, when you were saying Jarasta, his job was affected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that traumatizes you because it's very hard to say, well, you know, that's on them. You don't feel like it's on them. You feel like if it wasn't for you being in his life, he wouldn't have yep. to deal with that crap. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you're like, oh, no, oh, definitely. I, I'm taking that, you know, that's trauma for me because I have now caused, I've been the root cause of something that's hurt someone I love. And, and especially because I'll tell you when this started was when I you know, being the proud, the proud partner said, oh, they hinted at that they might give him a managerial role. Uh-huh. And that's when it started. Garrett, right. and then, oh, sorry, we can't have you succeed. <laughs> we exactly. can't have you around anything successful. Yeah. Okay. So in my recovery, my particular recovery, and I've explained this to everybody at Swan Waters, is I am extraordinarily left-brained and what was really important for me was to sort of get my emotion out of it because in addition to being left brain, I tend to also be very over emotional about certain things. Um, if I'm deeply, I'm an empath. We, we all are empaths and um, you know, I feel things very, very deeply. So I got to the point where I thought, okay, you know what, Aubrey, use your brain. 
go pull all of these pieces of scientific literature, go read this stuff, go understand. And that's really when my recovery took a completely different tack is when I could start recognizing his push-pull for what it actually was. Mm. I could recognize how his behavior was physiologically and, and physically, physically and psychologically affecting me. And I could kind of develop like you, like the article emotional armor. There was also a, a, there was a psychological component and a physical component to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and those things, you know, I would have symptoms come on and I would know that's what it was. And just knowing, just being able to put a label to it, you know, labels to me are actually a good thing because if I can, mm-hmm. if I can name something, then I can understand it better. So when I was able to accept, oh, I've developed post-traumatic stress disorder and this is why. And when I have um, symptom this, that is a normal, rational reaction to X. And I was able to look at it in a, in a whole different, you know, it puts it in a different package. And you're not just going, why am I feeling like this? Why do I feel like this? Why am I, I can't do this and that and the other. And, you know, you're almost berating yourself for yeah. having a normal expected reaction when, when you have that. So a couple of tips before I throw it over to Monkey, a couple of tips from my personal journey. Um, about how to challenge those things, all right? So the yeah. especially the intra-traumatic stress, if you're still having to deal with your toxic person, the intra-traumatic stress is something that you have to really recognize. One of the things is stand up for yourself and stand firm. By that, I mean you don't have to pick a fight. Sometimes standing up and standing firm is me blocking my ex-husband from my phones and never again taking his phone call. Mm-hmm. Never again. He attempted, by the way, to call me last week on my cell phone from his office line, which I guess he thinks that I'm dumb as a sack of rocks and I don't know how to trace a phone number. But that, to me, was standing firm. I saw that number come up, and I said, you know what? There's only one person that phone call could be coming from, and I could have answered it, but I didn't. That was no. me standing up and standing firm. I don't care how much bait you throw at me. I am not taking your bait. That's yeah. it. The second thing is mindfulness. Being mindfully aware, you know, because we, I think it's, I think it's perfectly natural, and Monkey, you probably went, have gone through this as well, but I think it's perfectly natural to find ways to cocoon ourselves because we really don't like feeling bad. Mm-hmm. We really don't like feeling upset or stressed or tired or, you know, oh, my God, do I really have to see that road sign again today? Yes. Um, and it's so it's so easy for us to just shut down and say, I just don't want to deal with any of it. But I think mindfulness, being mindfully aware of your triggers and your reactions and that they're perfectly normal is actually a tool to healing to yeah. say, okay. If this was my, you know, I always phrase it to people, if I was your best friend and I was saying these things to you, what would your reaction to me be? Well, great. Then extend yourself the same courtesy. Extend extend yourself the same care. Yeah. And that leads kind, me to my... I always say kindness is key. That That's true. And, that's, and that leads me to the third thing, which is self-care. And if you have not been on our group yet, our self-care group on the page, 
really please go there because we put in some really good tips for self-care, which is incredibly important. Professional help is key to getting on with dealing with the deeper issues. Uh-huh. But your self-care is your daily management, which is sometimes hourly and sometimes minute by minute, seriously. Uh-huh. Um, but self-care, doing things for yourself, whether it's children, you're going to give me 10 minutes. I don't, want, I don't want my famous line in my house is, unless you're thrown up, the house is on fire, or someone's dying, don't interrupt me for 10 minutes, whatever uh-huh. it is. <laughs> whatever it is, it can wait 10 minutes. And just little things to, I don't want to use the word pamper because then the guys are going to be like, oh, I'm not going to pamper. (laughs) You want me to give myself a pedicure? (laughs) But it's true to to care for your soul. Yeah, do something something that makes you feel good. Right. And it can be anything. Yeah. Just playing in the dirt. Go play in the dirt in the backyard, you know? Um, so, so those three things, stand up and stand firm. So create a boundary and stick with it. Whatever that boundary is, that is so good for your recovery. And Mm -hmm. then being mindfully aware of why you react the way you do and preparing to deal with those reactions. And then the self care of how you're going to nurture yourself. I am Mike Thompson and I'm the director over at Sore Notice and I'm so excited to tell you that we've recently launched the Healing Academy which quite literally is a school for healing after abuse. So if you have a past where you have been abused or bullied or had to deal with toxic people then head over and check it out. There's all sorts of stuff that you can learn. Anything from escaping an abusive situation to dealing with PTSD, to how to learn to self-care, how you can use journaling in your in your healing, um, how to deal with bullies in the workplace. There's all sorts of stuff. I can't even begin to list everything because I will run out of time. So <laughs> head over to swanwaters.com slash join to find out more. Bye. <laughs> Okay, so Monkey, we're going to go over to you about childhood trauma and mm-hmm. especially narcissistic abuse in families, and it's generally an unrecognized trauma. So I'm going to throw that over to you, and you can take off. Yay! <laughs> um, that sounds like so much more fun than uh, than it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think um, a lot of the things that you've mentioned as well is um, – is in recycling thoughts, right? Because um, uh, like you say, this isn't a, a one trauma event. Uh, I mean, when I was 12, I was cycling to school and I was run over by a truck. Um, that was a one-time event. And for a while I was kind of skittish around trucks, but, 
you know, you learn to move past that and you learn, you know, you, you learn that not every truck is going to run over you. So, um, but when it comes to my parents, some of the things that I'm, that I'm uh, realizing and learning about the programming that, that they've instilled in me is, um, you know, it, it, some of these things go back so far that they, they that they really become part of your uh, your identity and your uh, your coding really. And uh, one of the one of the things that we've been talking about on the forum, and this, this happens to be something that I'm uh, processing <laughs> at the moment, so it's a good example. But one of the things, and I, I think I've actually mentioned it before, is that. My uh, my mother uh, was very obsessed about weight. Um, all of her children genetically took after their father a little bit more. My father's family is a little bit more curvy than my mother's family. So that was an issue. So uh, as long as I can remember, we were on diets and we were... Um, I mean, I, I have always held the belief that I was fat to the extent where my mother complained that I was so big before I was born that people thought I was twins. So in my head, in my brain, there's this idea that I was overweight even before I was born. But not only that, I was over, overweight and it was my fault even before I was born. And there's these, so there's these lines of programming, right? And that's, I mean, that's pretty traumatic if you, if you are constantly told that. And I, I have seen pictures of myself as a child. I wasn't an overweight child at all. But at some point, that message becomes who you are. And I actually, I was having a conversation with Jarasta about this today. That message that you keep getting becomes your identity and that then translate in in some of the issues that um Aubrey you were mentioning mentioning as well right so if you constantly hear that you're not good enough for this then you are likely to develop that problem um I know that alcohol abuse is an issue it, for a lot of people um with this kind of background with these kind of backgrounds it luckily uh, never became a problem for me but when but it could very easily have been one of the one of the messages that and there's this picture of me as a one-year-old holding a wine bottle an empty uh wine bottle and the story goes and this is retold every <laughs> every party and every family occasion especially when i can hear it um, um the story goes that my parents would put the empty bottles near the door to take to the glass bin um, and I would crawl into the hallway, grab the bottles and drink the last bit, you know, like the last bit that was left in the bottle. So my mother always jokingly said, you were an alcoholic by the age of one. So, you and, and an alcoholic by the age, by of, the one? age of one. Fantastic, yeah. right? Because, <laughs> and this is a recurring theme, actually. She's spread, uh, she spread stories about me when I dropped out of uni and I dropped out of uni because I really hated my course. Um, <laughs> took me a while to realize, but I hated my course. So I dropped out and then I went and did something else. 
But when I initially dropped out and I moved back in with my parents and I found this out years later, what they did was tell everybody that I had a drug and alcohol dependency issue and that's why I had to move back in with them. And so she nursed me back to health. Sorry, I'm laughing that, about that it. That gives her an enormous <laughs> sense of importance now, doesn't it? I know, I know. And and also makes me look bad, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I laugh about it now. When I found out, I was not amused. Um, but so alcohol abuse is really a theme that runs through accusations that she makes of me. And when really, when I look at just sick, at the alcohol intake of my various family members. I think I'm one of the I'm one of the people that drinks least of all of them. But you know, whatever. <laughs> but these are messages that keep coming back, right? And so the conversation I was having this afternoon was related to the weight issue because uh so my mother kept 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 that alive, right? And and so other family members started chiming in as well because, you know, flying monkeys and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I realize now that that message has so much become part of my identity in my head that any attempt I have made in my adult life to lose weight is just going to not succeed Mm -hmm. because I can't I can't see myself as not being overweight does that make any sense absolutely and it's like what you brought up before when we were talking about financial abuse Mm -hmm. and and even when you're looking at your bank account and you know you have the money to pay the bills and you said you still just you're like oh Oh, those messages those messages telling me I'm bad with money (laughs) I know I know there's there's actually it's funny that you say that there's a bill sitting on my desk and I've been staring at it all day going like oh (laughs) so I'm gonna put myself to paying it later this evening but (laughs) but it's been sitting there and it's been staring at me all day (laughs) But yes, so it's, and it's these, like I said, it's these normal things that, it, and I even have, you know, you have sort of evidence against these claims, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but still they're in your mind somehow. Right. And they're, and that voice is so hard to drown out sometimes. And then, and then sometimes I realize as well that it's, you know, I'll I'll say something to a person and more often than not, in fact, I'll say something to Joe Rasta. And I'm saying it and it's almost like an outer body experience. I'm saying this and I'm and I'm thinking, this is not at all what I'm thinking about this situation. It's almost as if I'm just and I'm in this and I'm and I but I keep talking <laughs> and I keep saying this and it's almost like you know what I mean? And I and I and I'm realizing now that that is kind of her voice spilling out of me, right? And that's how the trauma continues. Exactly. That, that's how, and that's how the trauma perpetuated, perpetuates itself. And most people don't understand that is a hallmark of post-traumatic stress disorder. Exactly. It's, it is that you, and it's, and it can, it's silly trigger sometimes as well. And, and I think what you're saying, what you were saying, like becoming aware that this is, there's a name for what is happening to you. It, you're not crazy. There's, you know, there's a reason that this is going on. Um, and reading into it, 
makes that you become that you're you're going to be able to be more aware of what is going on right so that's when i started to learn triggers knowing that there is such a thing as a trigger <laughs> is yeah. one thing and then so you need to know okay so there's things that are going to trigger me um now i can start looking for them and and what i realize is that just before i become my mother's spoke person mm-hmm. <laughs> i usually start with a remark along the lines of don't take this the wrong way mm-hmm. i don't mean this to be nasty or, or you know whatever I you, you know i love you but yeah exactly yeah. So now I'm recognizing the start of it and I can stop it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and and also I, I've come to the bit where I'm saying, oh, sorry, never mind. That was just, <laughs> yeah. that was just the beast starting up. Uh, <laughs> and I can joke about it too, because I look and I go, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to go do this and I can pretty much count on this being a trigger. And if it, and if I actually, don't manage to avoid whatever that trigger was, mm-hmm. then my response is usually, yep, saw that coming a mile away, didn't I? You know, and, well, I and, and that's the thing. And yeah. And, but that, but that is where uh, becoming aware of your triggers is so helpful because, and also because you can, you can prepare for them as well. Right. So sometimes it's like, um, oh, we're going to do uh, like the, the bill paying thing. Right. I know that that's going to stress me out. So I'm probably going to say something stupid. (laughs) But because I know that, I then, um, I I can then say to um, to Jarasta, do you know what? Can we just get these bills done? And if I say something nasty, please forgive me. Do you know what I mean? And we can laugh it off because we've, because we've already established that, okay, you know what, this is a difficult situation and it's stupid and it's silly, but it is what it is. And now we can make a joke about it. At least mm-hmm. I can make a joke about it. Because other people making jokes about my triggers is sometimes a bit. <laughs> a uh, bit you know risky. what I think would be awesome <laughs> is if every time you paid a bill, you screamed at the top of your lungs, and <laughs> you, I just paid my bill, so shut up. <laughs> But, and here's the thing, right? Um, there's a there's a self affirmation exercise um, on on our site, and I'll, we'll put a link on the page. But I went through that myself as well when I found it. And uh, do you know that? Like, I have these little notes around my house that are um, uh, that are a result of me doing, going through that exercise. And basically, it's it's finding that evidence against. Uh, the voice in your head, right? So the, vo- the voice in my head tells me I'm lazy. Now, uh, I'm not. <laughs> I am. I am actually quite a hardworking person. So mm-hmm. there's now a note note on my uh, one of my noteboards that says I am a hardworking person, and <laughs> so my house is covered in these little reminders that the voice that is in my head is not telling me the truth. And slowly but surely, the voice in my head is starting to shut up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and what you're describing is very common for PTSD treatment. It's called desensitization, mm. where you re expose yourself to a trigger purposely. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are certain triggers you have to re-expose yourself to, like you have to eat and you have to pay your bills, right? Yes. So there, there are certain triggers you just seriously are not going to be able to avoid. But in desensitization, one of the techniques that they use is just exposing you in little snippets and having mm-hmm. you mentally override, learn to mentally override that reaction, that program's mm-hmm. reaction. Um, and that is a, a common part of PTSD treatment. I know one of my friends um, from high school is actually a licensed professional counselor, but he works at a hospital, and he does, you know, in intake at a county hospital, which has got to be big fun, in the emergency room. So it doesn't get more exciting than that, right? <laughs> but one of the things that he said to me is he said, uh, because I was complaining because I love music, Love, love, love music. A huge part of my life. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I was complaining about was certain songs from a certain time period um, would trigger me. And I couldn't listen to them. And I said I was so bothered by it because I used to love these songs. And now all they do is trigger something negative. And he gave me an exercise to do. He said, you know what? He says, this works a lot with trauma victims. He said, you have to reclaim that. So he actually has me doing these exercises where anytime one of those songs comes on the radio, he says, don't turn it off. He said, you got to leave it on. And during the entire song, you have to say, I am reclaiming this for myself. It is no longer yours. It is no longer you talking to me. It's no longer you traumatizing me, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I've done this with several songs that I hear routinely on the <clears throat> the 80s station. <clears throat> and... <laughs> Uh, calling myself out, right? Um, but I will hear certain songs and I will talk myself through those. And that's also mm-hmm. a desensitization process. Mm-hmm. I I did something similar, but um, when we moved into our current house, it has huge big mirror wardrobes. <laughs> Which for someone, oh. <laughs> which for someone who hates looking in the mirror is just punishment, torture. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, but you know, I don't have a choice because I need to walk past that mirror every day, like ten times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I then instead, and every time I looked in the mirror, I could hear myself go, "Oh, look at you! You look horrible," or "Oh." You, you're so, do you know what I mean? And all these sort of negative right. things, like all random stuff, right? All the voices. And so at some point I thought, you know what? I'm fed up hearing that voice every time I walk into my bedroom. I'm not doing it again. So now, and so I made a point of every time I walked past to actually stop and look at myself and say something nice about myself. Notice something mm-hmm. that was like, like, and even it could just be like, oh, look at your hair today. It looks awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Do you know what I mean? your Just, eye makeup. You did a great job today. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. top looks good. Do you know what I mean? And just these yep. these kind of messages. And uh, yeah, I, it, you know, there's still days where, of course, there's still days when I walk past that mirror and I can hear her in my head. Right. Um, but they're getting fewer. <laughs> so, well, and that reminds you know, me, I don't know if you saw that meme that went around Facebook that said... Uh, something to the effect of, I don't want to make you jealous, but I can still fit into the earrings that I wore in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of think, you know, sometimes you just got to be sassy to get through that moment. (laughs) Do you know that earrings are a huge trauma trigger for me? (laughs) Are they really? 
<laughs> they are. When I was younger, I had, so I had my ears pierced in the day that I was allowed to take the, the ones that they shoot through your ear, the, those ones out. Right. My mother was going to put these earrings in. And I, and obviously I was super excited and, you know, I couldn't wait for the six weeks to be over. And what she actually did, she would put them in at an angle. So, and I was screaming, screaming, screaming. And she was like, oh don't be a baby. But <laughs> so she actually pierced half of a second hole with a blunt object. And so I, I like earrings a little. <laughs> and she just wow. kept telling me to shut up because putting an earring in is not painful now i uh, sure that's true but uh, that was the only time that anyone put an earring in but again like now with my adult brain i look back at that and i think you know when you look back with your adult brain sometimes you're like seriously you must have known that something was wrong when you had to use that much force to put something through a hole that should have already been there and it's the same with the 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 wine bottles surely if i did that regularly you would have taken the waste glass and put it somewhere else where i couldn't get surely that was your responsibility as a parent to make sure that me as a one-year-old couldn't get to alcohol and some of that is some of that is also kind of a good way of dealing with the the traumatic experience of it right looking back and thinking do you know what yes she said that about you but let's face it as the adult as the parent it was her responsibility Mm -hmm. to protect you or to not do that or to make sure that that couldn't happen I mean they had at some point they had a guy living upstairs who was uh who had a heroin problem and in and he was like throwing furniture around and she sent my sister up who must have been seven or eight. She sent her up to check what was going on upstairs. And I'm like, seriously, you sending a seven or eight year old to go check on the heroin addict that you've got living in your house? Like, Brilliant. what's, what's up with that? <laughs> well, and but, you know what? That's another, that's another perfect example of something that we don't give a lot of thought to, which is, when we remember specific traumatic incidents from our childhood, we don't give those enough credence. I don't think, Mm. I don't think we give those the respect that they deserve in so far as how they affected us long-term because I can think of specific things that happened like that in great, and you know what I'm talking about. You can remember it in great vivid detail you remember sights and sounds and smells yeah. and tone of voice and everything. Sometimes what you mm-hmm. were wearing and the whole thing, that is a hallmark of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we give that the respect that, that it deserves as to how, you know, l- like I said, how it affected us long term. Yeah. And I think that's why part of the journey, part of going through the journey, and I think, you know, sharing on a forum like, like on Swan Waters, but, but writing it down in general, um, it allows you to, to go through the story again and look at it from the perspective that you have now as an adult and, and, and realizing that there was an abusive situation and you start reframing things, re, um, 
reevaluating um, incidences, and 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 you're and you'll start to see how what happened, even small-ish things, may still have um, an effect um, in your everyday life now. Um, and usually because, okay, maybe one thing happened, but then it, it's like there's that one photo of me holding that empty bottle, right? Mm-hmm. But because it was mentioned and joked about every single time that the family was together, you know, that, so, and again, and you get it again, and you get, and do you know what I mean? So, right. so all of a sudden now I realize what kind of message she's been sending me since I was, uh, I mean, since before I was born. Like I said, that's when I started being responsible for weight issues drunk. that I didn't when you have. Won. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? But this the is first how, time you got drunk. <laughs> exactly. And that's how far back things go. So, yeah, uh, of course, that's part of your programming. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, you're struggling. And, and we say it so often when we say, do you know what? Um, we were talking uh, uh, on the forum, Aubrey, about in our child work as well, like rediscovering who you actually are is that is a real challenge when yeah. you've never ever been allowed to be who you are. So that's a challenge. <laughs> but writing and, it down, and for I am going to go buy it. Down, I'm going to go get a spirograph. I just want you to know that I, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go get myself a brand new spirograph. <laughs> <laughs> to play with. It occurred to me that my children don't even know what a spirograph is. <laughs> which is not. which is a damn shame if you ask me. <laughs> well that that's gonna be their childhood trauma then. <laughs> that's right. You never got me a spirograph. <laughs> but true. I think writing it down and reading back and and it you know, the, it really allows you to start analyzing your own story. And I think, like we said, like once you know that you're looking for triggers, that's when you can start seeing the triggers. And, and because you're writing stuff down and you might be comparing how you feel now with what you wrote, you know, six months ago, I still do that. Sometimes and I'll, <laughs> I did it the other, the other day. I was reading an, an older article that I did for the site and I wrote it. And I was like, that's so insightful. I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> Well, I said really smart. (laughs) (laughs) But going back on your own writing and seeing how, you know, it it just, it helps you connect the dots between what happened then and what is happening now. Right. Right. So I'm going to, um, I just want to to sort of wrap up by saying, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be sending some links that we're going to post under this podcast and to specific resources. Now, these some of them are probably resources that people have already tapped into, mm-hmm. but um, there are a lot of really healthcare information, but I'd like for people to explore them. Because even if you think you've already looked up PTSD or if you've been treated for PTSD or someone said to you, hey, I think you have PTSD, if you've just finished listening to this and you've had a couple of aha moments and thought, oh, golly, maybe, yeah, maybe there is something to this. Go back and give it a fresh read. Um, I'm especially going to point to some things that are domestic abuse related, and that can be um, domestic abuse either physically toward a child or physically toward an adult or non-physically. So it's all under the same umbrella. It still causes the same 
um, the same trauma. But mm-hmm. it's really important, I think, to understand how your body is reacting because we, golly, we underestimate the mind-body connection. Oh, I, I mean, so I, even as much as I know, I vastly underestimated. I remember going to the endocrinologist. My hair was falling out, and I was gaining weight for no reason, and my eyelashes fell out, and my eyebrows fell out, everything. And I said to her, you know, she says, well, have you had any other issues lately? And I said, well, I was recently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. She's like, okay, well, that explains your blood work because your thyroid is off the charts, and this is going on, and that's going on, and all that. And I went, oh. Okay. <laughs> definitely. So, definitely. Yeah. And I've I've once went to the doctor um because I couldn't breathe properly, so I thought, well, maybe I've got pneumonia or something like that. Um and he looked at me and he says, "Can you tell me some of the stuff that's going like you said, like tell me some of the stuff that's going on in your life?" Right. And I says, "Well, I'm having some trouble at work cuz my boss is about blah. and he's like, "Well, let me tell you what's going on with your breathing. That's stress." <laughs> So mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about this boss of yours. And that was the yeah. start for me to, to actually come to terms with that. I was, well, I was working for a narcissist, uh, <laughs> which is also and fun. You, and, and, and it's so common. We, we, like I said, we so completely underestimate the powerful connection between the yes. mind and the body. But that also, I find some comfort in that because once you understand how to harness that energy, and you can refocus your brain into telling your body what it's supposed to do. And that's actually how I teach my daughters to handle their anxiety disorder. Whenever they have um, an episode with their anxiety disorder, the first thing I say to them is, what's in charge right now? And they go, mm. my brain, my brain is in charge. My brain is going to take over. I'm going to tell my brain to tell my body this, this, and this. And so that's our routine is mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach them to be mindful about using the, the mind over body, you know, power uh-huh. um, to, to calm those experiences because it worked for me mm-hmm. in a lot of respects. It worked for me. So, you know, it's a long process, but yeah. I think the first step is really recognizing that it's there and that's what it is. And it doesn't matter that you didn't go fight in the Middle East. You still, you still have the same exact um, psychological injury as someone who did. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, and I think we've we mentioned mindfulness a lot, but it's um, mm-hmm. it, it, that is also something that's definitely worth uh, looking into because it's so. I think it it is a, a relatively. Um, simple way of getting in touch with uh, what's going on with me just now, um, which makes it so much easier to recognize as well when you are triggered, that you are triggered. Mm-hmm. Rather than just lash out, you you can feel it happening. And then and once you become more aware of, you know, how you are in the moment, then you can also change how you how you respond to the emotion that you're feeling or, or, or whatever, um, yeah, whatever emotion is being triggered, you can, you can change your response to that. Yep. Absolutely true. In the interest of time, we should probably break right here, but I wanted to, um, thank our speakers, Aubrey monkey. Thanks so much for participating today in this discussion, an incredibly important topic for all of us and a great preview of, um, some wonderful podcasts we have slated for the month of May. I want to thank all our participants. We hope you found the time informative and, and useful as we uh, as we probe the topic, and we certainly did.
If you enjoyed listening in, please come back for more. We have a number of other podcasts slated for the next couple of months. And of course, if you have any questions, you can submit them at the bottom of the page. Sign up for our newsletter if you'd like, and we'll notify you when new interviews are available. Let's end with a quote from Christine Langley Oba, which is simplicity at its best. And that is, we repeat what we don't repair. Thanks, everyone. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.